maybe 30 or 20 years ago, a Saudi might have said, I'm Muslim and I'm Arab and I'm Saudi. Now they might say, I'm Saudi and I'm Arab and I'm Muslim. You know, they're trying to radically refashion their country and they need help from the best experts in the world. Do you want to have your country's people be disqualified from that because of some essentially antiquated point of view about how countries work together? In recent months, it can feel like Saudi Arabia is intent on buying the world. It's bought up much of golf, sports teams, many of the globe's best soccer players to its own domestic league, and it owns huge chunks of many of the biggest companies on the planet. But Saudi Arabia is not just on a shopping spree. The once insular, oil-rich kingdom is transforming into a major diplomatic and military player, a pivotal actor in the energy transition, and looks set to host high-end cultural events like the FIFA World Cup. You know, they know that buying a football club immediately brings you a billboard into a global game that allows you to completely reposition yourself and rebrand yourself. It feels like we're entering the era of the Saudi project. But what exactly is the kingdom trying to achieve, and will it succeed? Coming soon from Intelligence Squared, the Saudi project is a new podcast series seeking to answer some of these questions and more. Britain does have choices. It's not either or situation. We either indulge Mohammed bin Salman or boycott Mohammed bin Salman. There is a third choice. Search The Saudi Project wherever you get your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Catherine Philp, Diplomatic Correspondent for The Times, and welcome to the Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. I'm here with Angel Pfeffer, writer for Haaretz and The Economist, and author of Bibi, The Turbulent Life and Times of Benjamin Netanyahu. Anshul, welcome to Intelligence Squares. Um, Thank you, you couldn't, me, Catherine. You couldn't have chosen a more apt time to be releasing a book about um, the Israeli Prime Minister. He's uh, a ubiquitous figure on the world stage these days. But one of the very interesting things you touch on in your book that people may not be aware of is a lot about his roots and where he came from. Um, and you you mentioned, crucially, that he is the first Israeli prime minister to actually be born in the state of Israel. Um, and you take us back to the roots of his grandfather and his father, and you tell a story about where he's come from and how that fits into this Zionist narrative that he is is now projecting. C- can you tell us about what you think about his background is most significant to who he is today? Well, with the book, what I was trying to do besides to tell Netanyahu's story was write uh, a history of Israel in a, in a slightly different way that's been done until now. It's, it's not just convenient, the fact that Netanyahu's life from his birth, he was born in 1949, just 14 months after the birth of Israel. But the story of Israel has been told until now, almost always, almost exclusively from the perspective of the founding generation of Israelis, from David Ben-Gurion and Golda Meir and Moshe Dayan. And these are all members of the center-left 
socialist Zionist movement, which was the mainstream of Zionism almost from the beginning of the 20th century, but they, they were never alone there. And Netanyahu and his father and his grandfather represent another stream of Zionism, a revisionist Zionism, which what evolved into what is today the Likud party, right-wing Zionism. And at the time, it wasn't the mainstream. It, they, were, they, they did not found the state. They were the opposition already before the, the state was founded, and they were outside. They were, they, were out, they were classic outsiders. However, they were very much part of the story even then, and for the last 30-odd years, they've, they've been in power in Israel. So I think the way that Israel's story has been told from the perspective of those who today are in the opposition and... Who knows for how long they'll still let, they'll still be in opposition? Is is only very is only a very very narrow part of the Israeli story, and there's a tendency to see Netanyahu as almost as an aberration, as some kind of foreign transplant grafted onto Israel. And as, when Netanyahu leaves, everything will be will be okay. Everything will go back to the way it used to be, and we'll have the successes of Rabin and Perez. And Netanyahu is just a mistake. And it's important to see that Netanyahu does reflect Israel in many of its, its of its aspects, and he is the country as it is today. And the more and more I burrowed into Netanyahu's story and his family's story, I realized that that was always part of the Zionist narrative, even though the narrative that was being told to the wider public, to the West, was very much a narrative of of Ben Gurion and of those kibbutz builders and pioneers, while the revisionists who tended to be more uh, more speech makers and involved in in more of a of a I'd say militaristic type of Zionism, which wasn't the early type of Zionism that we saw in the first decades of Israel, that was they were there and they were always part of the story. Just they weren't in power and they weren't in the mainstream. And Netanyahu is not only as a person, as a, as a, as a character was built from the, from that story, from that counter-narrative of Zionism. But that was also what, what, what served him as his political background and his political uh, ladder to power. And it's what's keeping him today in power, the fact that there are these groups who always were there, always were part of the Jewish and the Israeli and the Zionist story. And he he's managed to bring them together. His predecessor, Likud Menachem Begin, brought them together, but he has managed to really knit them much closer into this alliance of underdogs and outsiders who even while today have already been for more than three decades in power, still feel that they're the outsiders and that they have to carry on railing against the elite. And it's very much what we're seeing today in populist politics in Europe and the United States. Netanyahu has been doing that for, for th- over 30 years in his career. And that's I think, was the main insight and discovery that I found in working on the book. Mm. And another important strand in, in Netanyahu's makeup is um, his, his American um, persona and his relationship with America and his understanding of that country. And that started in his childhood, didn't it? Well, he spent a large part of his childhood. He spent yeah, between the 9 and 11 and then from 13 until 18. He spent those years in the U.S. His father was uh, a serious academic who couldn't find uh, the kind of post he was looking for in what was then a very small academic wor- world in Young Israel. It was basically just one university, Hebrew University in Jerusalem, which was Professor Ben Sion Netanyahu's alma mater, but he didn't find a, a job there. He 
instead had to work as the editor of, of an encyclopedia, which was a good job from a financial point of view, but it wasn't what he was looking for. He wanted to, he wanted to be a researcher. He wanted to write historic books. And he only found it possible to do so in the United States. So he uprooted his young family. They had, Benzion and Sila, the parents, had three sons, Yoni, Bibi, the middle, middle son, and Ido, the small son. They uprooted them to the U.S. That for Netanyahu, Junior at the time was very dislocating. He talks about it to this day as being a trauma that they grew up as, ch- as kids in what was then a very small town, Jerusalem. Jerusalem at the time was a frontier town because before 67, half the town was control- controlled by the Jordanian army. And for them, that was home, this little city in which they knew everyone and they went to the, the school where everyone was either a son of a senior official or of a senior general. They were, they very felt, the sons felt very much part of that, while their father felt that he hadn't been denied the kind of academic recognition that he felt was his due, and that's why he took them to the U.S. And from that time, in his early teens, when Bibi was a young boy in Philadelphia, this dual persona began to develop. So he was still very much Israeli, and he remained very much Israeli. And, and the fact that people think that he's more American than Israeli, as some of his rivals say, that I, I think, and I hope I prove that in the book, is not the case. But he built this very polished exterior of Americanism. He totally managed to get rid of his Israeli accent, acquire perfectly fluent English. He became an, an honor student in high school. He even had two names. For his Israeli friends and family, he was Bibi. And for his American friends, he was Ben. And for many years, he kept that name. Ben even changed his surname to, act to, to, a, to a Hebrew surname, Nitai, but it was more, much more easier for, the, for his American friends to pronounce. So he had that side to him. Also, he wasn't a U.S. citizen because his mother was, came from a family which had lived in Minneapolis. So he had all these sides to him. But I argue in the book that these are, these are very instrumental sides. These are not who he is. He is through and through an Israeli nationalist, a Jewish nationalist, a very secular Jewish nationalist who is adept at using his American side to win over audience in the U.S., to make himself see more statesman-like. And he is a statesman, but his polished American and television appearances make him even more of that. And in the young years, when he would, before he became a statesman, he was already a very, very accomplished performer. He was one of the stars in the early years of CNN. He was taken, he was, he was invited almost nightly into the, Larry King once said famously he would be a 10 if, if only he had a sense of humor, which maybe <laughs> took into, it took into account. And ever since he's always made sure to put a joke in every speech and every interview, not that he has a sense of humor, but he can, no, he, he can, but, but, but his, his performances <laughs> are certainly incorporate that. So I think the Netanyahu, the, the American side of Netanyahu is very much there, but it's an, it's an instrumental side. It's a, it's a shell or a, or, or a cloak that he puts on when he needs it and I think it's a devastating effect mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. great um, it would be great if you could address his relationship with his older brother uh, who went back I believe to Israel while he was still in Philadelphia which was another wrench for Bibi well it certainly was a wrench and it was also basically trailblazing the way for Bibi so their father was an academic, he was a staunch Zionist, but he didn't see military service as something which his sons necessarily have to do. He was, he, he had come of age before the establishment of the state of Israel, and he had never understood, at least not in, until much later, how important military service would become as, a, as an integral part of life and of the Israeli elite. He believed that his sons, and his sons were very intelligent young men, 
they as they would serve the Zionists and the Jewish elite as by being intellectuals, by being people who would go and study in the top universities of the U.S. And later on, they would perhaps become diplomats or politicians, but they wouldn't necessarily have to serve in the army. So when his eldest son, Yoni, reached 18 and they were living in Philadelphia, he pressured Yoni to to apply to all the top Ivy League universities. Yoni was accepted to Harvard, but Yoni rebelled and went back to Israel at the age of 18. Three and a half years later, Bibi did the same thing. Bibi had been accepted to Yale at the age of 18. He was an honor student. He didn't even stick around for his graduation ceremony, which is always, we know, is a very big thing for American high schoolers. He didn't stay around. He didn't stick around. He was back in Israel preparing to, uh, to join the army. And this was very much following in Yoni's footsteps. So he had... His two main influences were his father, who was his, his ideological, intellectual influence. But in actual, actual decisions in life, he followed his elder brother by rebelling against the father. Ne- never, in, never ideologically. They both, both brothers remained very staunch nationalists and right-wingers. But by not staying in the U.S. and studying at a top university, by, by going at the age of 18 on their own to serve in the IDF, in the Israeli army, the, in the most elite of units. Now, Fast forward a few years, Yoni remained in... Bibi stayed for five years. He stayed for two and a, two, two more years than his uh, compulsory service. He became an officer in, in the most elite of Israeli units in Sarat Matkal. Fast forward a few years, and Yoni was already the... Yoni, who re- remained in the in the military and was on, a, on basically on, on a lifelong military career, mm-hmm. became the commander of that unit. And then in 1976, along came the hijack of the Air France airliner to Entebbe, and Yoni was at the led his men in as part of the very complex and very daring hostage rescue mission. Yoni was part of the team which burst into the terminal, there, the old terminal at Entebbe Airport, and rescued the hostage. Yoni was shot even before entering, by, apparently by, by a Ugandan soldier, firing from the control tower. And that was a moment which marked Netanyahu, his younger brother's life, because Yoni didn't return alive from Entebbe. He was one of many Israeli heroes and fallen soldiers, but the one who has been more commemorated than anyone else in Israel's history. And there are a number of reasons why Yoni has become such a hero. First of all, the Entebbe raid was less than three years after the Yom Kippur War. 1973, it was the biggest trauma for Israel probably in Israel's history, when Egypt and, and Syria launched a surprise attack, which was at first devastating successful. Afterwards, uh, Israel managed to, to repulse them and, and win the war. But the, the, those first few weeks were a very deep trauma for Israelis. The fact that the IDF, the great army which had won the Six-Day War and in less than a week vanquished uh, Syria and Jordan and, and Egypt and captured all those, all those the Golan Heights and the, and the West Bank and Sinai, done all that. Suddenly, 1973, that was broken. The trust of Israelis had been broken in the army. And the Entebbe operation was the moment which Israelis had been waiting for to rekindle their enthusiasm and their love and their trust in the idea. That's what the Entebbe raid did. But the people who were on the raid themselves were all anonymous. They couldn't, their names couldn't be mentioned because they were all pilots and special forces officers. So none of them could appear in the media with their faces and names. There was one face, one name. That was the, the one person who hadn't come back alive. Yoni Netanyahu's name could be mentioned. So Yoni Netanyahu, who had played a role in Entebbe, but not, not a central role. He, had, he was, there, were, there were over 200 men in different teams. He was commander of one of the teams there, but he hadn't planned the, the operation. He hadn't commanded the operation. But he was elevated 
posthumously into this figure who personified the entire operation. The, the operation was even renamed. It was originally Operation Thunderbolt. It was renamed to Operation Yon, uh, Jonathan in Yoni Tanyao's name. But he was dead. So his name could be mentioned. His face could be put in pictures and magazines and even played by stars in Hollywood movies about Entebbe. But there was a role for a spokesperson. And Bibi, who, had, who hadn't been, he, he may have been in the operation if he'd been serving in the army. At the time, he was already back in the U.S. as a student at MIT, was thrust into this public role as the spokesperson of the Yoni Netanyahu myth of the Netanyahu family. And the family went about building this myth of a warrior philosopher, a man who could have been the greatest leader of the Jewish people had he lived. That was obviously an exaggeration. Yoni wasn't. Yoni was obviously a very gifted officer, but he was actually about to be relieved of his command. And Entebbe, in a way, saved the the myth of Yoni Netanyahu. If if he had come back alive, or if the Entebbe operation never happened, quite likely Yoni's career was about to end, and not not in very good circumstances. But that that wasn't happening. He was a dead hero. And for Bibi Netanyahu, at at the young age of at the time twenty, nearly twenty seven, this was his first push into public life as. Suddenly, he was a very under-demand lecturer, and they started setting up a think tank in the name of Yon. It was called the Jonathan Institute. It didn't last very long, but it was his first brush with fame. They, they made a big conference with all the leaders of Israel. Many guests from the United States came over to Jerusalem in 1979. And this was Bibi's uh, entry into the big time. Now, I, I think that Netanyahu would have become a, a politician and perhaps even Israel's leader, even without this big push. But there's no question this catapulted him very early, at a very early, relatively early age, into public life. In a few years from then, he was already the number two at the embassy in the U.S. Less than uh, seven years after after Yoni had died, he was already the ambassador to the U.N. at the age of thirty three, sorry thirty four, and uh, he was already on his meteoric trajectory to to the heights in which he which he has since achieved. And it was in Washington that he he seems to have got into this role as a Hasbarist, um, um, putting Israel's case to the outside world. Uh, he took to that role? He took perfectly to that role because it was also part of the revisionist ideology. They always saw the Hasbara, or as it, it literally means explaining, as a, as a very central part of what Zionists should be doing. Now, the mainstream old-school Zionism they believed also in explaining, in in, in in propagandizing, but they never saw it as a central part of what Zionism should be. They saw Zionism mainly as building kibbutzim and industry and roads and 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 and, and all the research and science things that that would come along in the in the Jewish state and obviously an army. These are all the things that they did. And they said at the same time you're gonna to have to try and explain to the world what we're doing. But they never saw it as as a central role, while Jabotinsky, the founder of the revisionist movement, who was the mentor of Ben Sion, Bibi's father, saw it as one of the three pillars of Zionism. That we have, if we, if we do not explain to the world why it is our right to to uh, to, to have and to own the the, the the Palestine, what would become the Jewish homeland, then we will fail. And Netanyahu took to this very naturally, and he to this day he believes. As we, as we can see in all his very frequent speeches and interviews and, and performances, that this is a core mission, that this is something that if it's not done, then Zionism will fail. And 
there's always been the been been a very large uh, part of the conflict within Zionism over the importance of Hasbara and Jabotinsky and his and his his followers were always accused of being people who can talk, not people who can do. And Netanyahu would argue that we have to do we have to do both. But yes, he was. He is probably the ultimate Hasbarist, and his many many of the the slogans and and the sound bites and the performance art that he uses, his visual images and so on, they they've become a core part of what it is to to make the argument for Israel today in this day and age. Even the people who politically don't agree with Netanyahu find himself using his his, his kind of language today. Mm. Um. I'd like to pick up on what you said about the accusation that uh, the revisionists talked but didn't don't do. Um, one charge that's laid at Netanyahu is that he he's uh, he's indecisive. He doesn't always want to take a risk on a course of action. And I was struck in your book by how this was reflected in his personal relationships. Um, he has three marriages. Uh, all of which he entered into under some duress, uh, you suggest. And I wondered if you could talk about those uh, and what you think they tell us about the man and the politician. Well, I think Netanyahu is all his uh, relationships, and I'm talking here not just about his relationship with three wives, but his relationships in general with with people who've worked with him, colleagues, allies over the years. As he's become so senior, it's always been un- almost always been underlings, but also world leaders with it, with whom he works. I think that he, he's always had a tendency to look at the very big picture of anything he's doing. So whether it's his own career, then he looks at his long-term trajectory. Whether it's uh, his, you know, his, his personal relationships, he, he's always tried, been very, very instrumental in seeing what he can get out of it. And that's why there's so many. That's why this, this book was so easy to research because Israel, and not just Israel, but New York and Washington and other some other cities in the world. It's just so easy to find people who, who feel betrayed by Netanyahu. I don't think because he actually consciously betrayed them in a way that he thought of a dirty trick, how he's going to get one over them in the way some politicians do, but just in the way he, in the way he's so instrumental in his relationships. You know, how does this get me to my objective? So transactional, which, yeah, very transactional, mm. and which is uh, makes it doesn't make it very easy to to build healthy relationships with women. And you mentioned his three wives. Each of his wives, I think there was a real love there, and from what I've heard, and his two ex-wives never speak, though they're not retiring women. They're very impressive. When one of them is today one of the most senior scientists in Israel, another one is a very high-powered socialite in New York. There doesn't seem to be much rancor there, but at the same time, the relationship didn't last because they had their own lives and they had their own purposes. And somehow Netanyahu's drive wasn't part of building a, a family life. Whereas his current wife, Sarah, who's stuck with him for, by now for, uh, for 27 years almost, ha- it totally immersed and integrated herself into the Netanyahu project. Some would say much too deeply into that project. And in that way, a lot of people say she's a liability to him. I think she's actually a source of strength because... We we tend to forget that in the middle of Netanyahu's political career, there were ten years in which he was out of power, in which he had been beaten by El Barak and then by El Sharon and then by El Olmert. And in that decade, I think Sarah Netanyahu, his current wife, was probably one of the main, if not the main factor, keeping him on track on the road back to power. Because Netanyahu 
would have probably could have had a very good life as you know working in the private sector after after his first term as prime minister certainly after his rather short but successful term as finance minister 15 years ago sorry 13 14 years ago in israel and every he lost he lost three elections in a row in that decade and every time he could have said well you know i've had enough i've been prime minister already i've had the top job i'm still a young man relatively was still in his 50s then why you know why carry on in the rat race of politics and there were people who who heard him muse privately that maybe maybe it's time to uh, to do something else sarah kept him on and like you say he was passive in that relationship she she was the one who initiated the first date. She get, she pushed her, her phone number on him. At the, she was at the time a, a, a flight attendant and on a, in Lal on a flight, and she and she gave him her phone number. And she was very, I'd say, assertive in in that relationship. And they only got married after she was pregnant with their with their son, with their first son Yair. And you can see that similar patterns happened in in the, in the two previous marriages. And it's interesting that a man who is so assertive and seems to know what he wants can be uh, that passive. And you and, and you went and you mentioned the fact that he he's accused of being indecisive, and that's true. And I think it's it's very much to do with his the fact that he's very risk averse. And people say people have this image of Netanyahu as being a thug and a warmonger, but the opposite is true. The truth is is that Netanyahu has had the least big wars and oper- major major operation of any Israeli prime minister. And an average year of Netanyahu is a very low casualty year. The, on the other hand, Netanyahu is not a peacemaker either. He doesn't want to make peace and he doesn't want to make war. He wants to keep Israel in this kind of tense and, and always on guard uh, status quo. He believes that that's the only way for Israel to survive. And he believes that Israel can, can despite being on edge in, the entire time, can still prosper. And if you look at the GDP going up, he may have a point then if you look at the way that the whole region and you know you cover that you've covered the region for years you've you've seen how how israel which was israel palestine which was seen as this major conflict this source of all problems in the middle east is now almost a sideshow and netanyahu was saying this 25 years ago he was saying people one day will realize that the palestinian issue is not an important issue it's a it's something that can be marginalized and somehow the palestinians can be pushed aside and bullied into into submission and it seems to be happening now because you have the Saudis and the Egyptians basically working with Israelis and totally putting the, the Palestinians in the corner, telling the, telling Abbas, either you accept whatever deal Trump's going to come along with, or you know we're not we're not going to have any, any any dealings with you anymore. You've seen how Trump has recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital, a major break with foreign policy, and yes, there've been some protests and that when we had the Gaza protests last week which were very violent and very bloody but not necessarily even connected to the Jerusalem issue and the world has sort of said okay we don't really like it but shrugged and Netanyahu is now probably one of the most influential world leaders in around he's, he, he's a man who, who who can pick up the phone to Trump which very few world leaders can do and he's a man who was accept who was taken as the guest of honor last week on May the 9th, the Victory Day parade in Moscow, he was standing there by Putin. You know, he he has he, he when he flies to India, then Modi takes him around for three or four days and just focuses on hosting Netanyahu. We have all these strong men, quote unquote, leaders who seem to be very fond and even see Bibi as as their mentor. Mm. So this is this is a very risk averse and indecisive president who's still seen by his colleagues as a very strong and decisive man, which is a great trick. 
Um, we will definitely come back to that issue of whether the Palestinian um, issue has been put on the back burner globally. Um, one thing that really struck me when you mentioned uh, the book that Bibi wrote in uh, 1993, A Place Amongst Nations, you said his views have never evolved, which is an extraordinary statement about any um, politician or world leader who's been on the stage as long as he has. Um, is that really true? Well, if you read the book, and it's not an it's not an easy read. It's a very <laughs> dense book, and if you want to read a good summary, then I, I there's a good book just out now, which which I think summarized. What's that <laughs> uh, you may you, you may have mentioned it already. <laughs> that so, and I tried to summarize the book, and I think it's an important point because he sat he sat down and wrote that book when when he became the leader of Likud after, when Likud was in after Likud lost the election in 1992. He took a few months to, 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 to write his, his thoughts and his, his blueprint for Israel and the region. And if you read that book today, you see that the plan that he set out then, whereby Israel would take on the Arab world as the West, as the, as the West representative and would brazen out any pressures, would put the Palestinians in their place, so to speak. And, it, and ultimately the world would accept it. And the world hasn't accepted it in the sense that the world doesn't yet agree with Israel that Israel needs to keep the West Bank and the settlements. But the world has sort of accepted the fact that there won't be a two-state solution. No, very few politicians more than pay any lip service. I'm talking about world politicians pay more than lip service to that anymore. It's almost as if they, they, they're just saying a mantra that they don't even believe in themselves. Only Donald Trump doesn't believe it, in it. So Netanyahu's reached this, this, this point where what he predicted seems to be happening, at least from his perspective. And we can say that it's not sustainable, that the occupation of almost 5 million Palestinians can't last. But we've been, we've been saying that we, the global commentariat, the, the, the centrist left media has been saying that for decades decades already. We've been saying it since the first intifada in 1987 that this can't last. And so far it's lasting. So far Israel's growing and becoming more prosperous. Its foreign relations have improved. All the states around it are in chaos while Israel is an incredible island of stability with occasional short storms. And this is what Netanyahu predicted 25 years ago, that, that, that if only Israel would go along with his policies, and he was writing it at the time, just before the Oslo process, when everyone suddenly had this dream of a new Middle East, where, be, where the Israelis and Palestinians will make peace, and then, then everyone else will, make, will follow their example, and the Middle East will suddenly become its haven of stability. And that was the book that's, that everyone's... Shimon Peres wrote a book, which was called The New Middle East, and everyone was saying, this is, this is the future, while Netanyahu's book was seen as some kind of dark and dystopian vision, which nobody really wanted to buy in. But if you come back 25 years later to the Middle East, the Oslo process hasn't been a huge success, hasn't really led to very much. While Netanyahu has been in power for most for over half... Of the time, exactly half of the time since he wrote that book, and his vision seems to be the one which is winning right now. Thank you, Anshul. Uh, we're going to take a short break. Okay, we're going to talk about the situation in Israel and the Greater Middle East as it affects Israel right now. Um, maybe we could go back to the changeover in Washington between administrations, from the Obama administration to the Trump administration. It has. <laughs> coincided or not coincided uh, with an enormous amount of developments in the Middle East, uh, a lot of which have a bearing on Israel and Israel's relationships with uh, regional countries. Could you talk about that process? 
Well, I think Netanyahu was anticipating a change, whoever was, was going to come along in the White House, even if, even if it was, would have been Hillary Clinton, certainly if it was going to be another Republican uh, president other than Donald Trump. And towards the towards the mid-second uh, term of Obama, it was clear that Barack Obama had sort of given up on the Palestinian issue. He'd allowed, obviously, John Kerry to carry on with his quixotic uh, bid for for a solution. John Kerry never ceased until the very end to believe that he could somehow force a pragmatic uh, decision from Netanyahu or from Abbas, for that, for that matter. He made four, about 400 phone conversations over his four years in, uh, as the Secretary of State to Netanyahu in the belief that somehow he could get to Netanyahu to an agreement. And Bibi, I think, understood that who, uh, who, he, who he was dealing with, that, that Kerry was this very idealistic but not, not quite realistic kind of guy. While Obama only focused really in the Middle East on his, on his Iran negotiation and the Iran deal, which I think was, is a, was find out probably because we can we can start talking about the Iran deal almost as something which is dead. But at the time, I think it was a good idea. However, it was it was not a good idea in the way that Obama allowed it to become the one big thing he was going to do in the Middle East, putting aside the need to work with his with, with America's Sunni allies and putting aside the need to somehow do something on the Israel Palestine front. And Netanyahu realized that this focus on Iran would, in, I think, in the end not be a lasting legacy of Obama. And he was prepared for the... I think, he was, I think there's no leader who was better prepared for the post-Obama era. The fact that the post-Obama era became the Trump era took even him by surprise, mm-hmm. but he, still, he was still prepared for that as well. So on the morning after the election in the US, everyone woke up, including Netanyahu, very surprised to discover that Hillary Clinton was not to be the next president of the United States, but it was going to be Donald Trump. But everyone else, every other leader and every chancery and government in the world was trying to find a way to get a, get, get a call through the switchboard at Trump Tower. Netanyahu didn't need to do that. He already had known Trump from the 1980s. They'd both hung out together in New York in the same kind of Republican-rich Circles, maybe obviously he wasn't a rich person, but his all his friends in New York were the kind of people who hung out with Donald Trump at the time. Mm-hmm. So he he had, he had been personally he had been introduced by Ronald Lauder, the the cosmetics heir, and at the time also a, a Republican a diplomat and then uh, a, a leader of Jewish organizations. And Lauder had, had introduced Trump. Trump wasn't close to Bibi, but they knew each other. Trump was even on a list of billionaires that Bibi had once written in his own handwriting in which he said, these are the people who I can turn to. He, he gave it to his aides as people they could call and ask for perhaps for a donation or for various other favors. So Trump was in the Netanyahu orbit from a very early early period and vice versa. Bibi was someone who Trump knew, one of the few politicians Trump knew well. And that obviously gave him an opening Bibi also knew very well, knows very well, the circles, other circles around Trump, including the Kushner family. Trump's son-in-law had actually been vacated from his bedroom once because Bibi was visiting New York. So that was the kind of closeness that Bibi already had with the Trump circles. And also there's the ideological closeness of many of the supporter base of Trump. So the evangelicals, whose senior uh, representative is, my, is Vice President Mike Pence, is someone that Bibi has been... Bibi was a new pets quite well, and the whole evangelical leadership were very close to Netanyahu and his way of looking at the world. And the same thing goes with the foreign policy hawks, like current Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and the new National Security Advisor John Bolton. So all these people are very much in the Netanyahu camp. They they, they, they share in the Netanyahu doctrine. So 
once Trump sort of settled down, it's hard to talk of Trump settling down. But now as it seems that there is a sort of a foreign policy come, coming together in Washington very late in, in this, this Trump term. But it seems to be happening and it seems to be articulated by people like Pompeo and Bolton. This, th- these are Bibi's people. These are the people who he was working with since the 1980s to try and impose their view of and, – and, and they had some success in the, in, in the Bush junior years as well. But now with Trump, this is – but Netanyahu then was in, was in opposition. Netanyahu's biggest regret for so many years when there was finally a Republican president that he liked, he wasn't in power. He had to deal with Bill Clinton in his first term and then in his second, third and fourth terms with Barack Obama. Now finally – there's an American administration which really sees eye to eye with Israel on everything, and there's never been a situation. I mean, yes, Israel has been has had massive support from the U.S. since its birth, specifically from after the Six Day War when it became a much more clear as a part as as the Western axis, as the U.S. orbit of power. But now we have an administration which literally will not criticize Israel about anything, will agree with Israel about everything, and in some ways, it's very useful for Netanyahu. Finally, he's seen the dem- he's seen the demise of the Iran deal, which he's hated. He's seeing Trump give Israel this incredible uh, asset of recognition, diplomatic asset of recognition of Jerusalem, which was something which was always going to be kept for a much later stage mm-hmm. in any kind of peace or diplomatic arrangement. But on the other hand, this is this is not a great period for, for Netanyahu and Israel because he hasn't got a stable US ally in the region in the same way that he would have had in the past. He hasn't got someone who can come in and calm down things. So last year there was a outbreak of violence in Jerusalem around uh, security arrangements at uh, Temple Mount. There was no US diplomat who could credibly come in and shuttle between Israel and the Palestinians. And the same thing is happening now in Syria. We have this, this massive vacuum of power into which Russia has inserted itself and Iran has inserted itself. And Israel hasn't got its American ally here to work with. So Netanyahu does have his own relationship with Putin, which, is, which has been very effective so far. But it's not like having this counterbalance of the US administration. And that does frustrate Netanyahu. And then one more thing which frustrates him is that it's much harder for him now to keep his own right-wingers in check. Because his own right-wingers come and say, why don't we extend sovereignty to the West Bank? Why don't we build more settlements? And Netanyahu does not want to pull back from the West Bank on the one hand, he wants Israel to keep security control. He doesn't want to be seen showing any weakness. But at the same time, he doesn't want to rock the boat and start doing things which could ruin the alliances he's building with the Saudis. He doesn't want to do things which will provoke a massive outbreak of the Palestinian population. So it's much more difficult for him now to tell his own right-wingers and his and more, you know, the, the, more uh, the settler camp within his coalition, guys, I can't do this because the Americans won't let me. Because they can see that the Americans will let him get away with murder right now. Mm-hmm. So not always helpel to have Washington no, in the back pocket. No. So it's good to have Washington holding you back a bit as, as an excuse. <laughs> So um, there's some other unusual alliances uh, emerging in the Middle East, and, and mostly uh, it's because of Iran. Um, uh, Trump has made great play of his relations with the Saudis, and it looks like there is a warming of relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel, although they seem to be um, sort of push and pull, as I think we saw when the Air India route through Saudi airspace opened up and uh, Israel was trumpeting it and Saudi was denying it was happening until it actually happened. Uh, but perhaps you could talk about this new, this alignment, realignment, where the um, Sunni powers in the region are, are sort of more um, 
openly is probably pushing it too far, but but are getting behind Israel because of the mutual perceived threat from Iran. Well, there are a number of factors here at play. Obviously, there's the mutual perceived threat, and it's a real threat. Yeah. It may be it may be, no, be exaggerated. It, it, may, it, yeah. it may be being exaggerated <laughs> to some degree. And also, Netanyahu has always had a changing cast of threats. So, in the eighties, when he was a diplomat, he was talking about the big threat to the West and to Israel as coming from the Soviet Union and their alliance with radical Arab regimes. And then he th- and then in the nineties, he spoke about Iraq. Then by two thousand three, the, the Iraqi military power was destroyed by the Americans. So and the British. So then Iran became the big threat. So there is something instrumental. Mental about about Iran as a big threat. Though he though he did speak about Iran also earlier on, but the, Netanyahu has always seen Israel in the region in in conflict with this, with, with elements of radical Islam and and radical Muslim ideologies, which might not, a radical Arab ideology, which not, may not necessarily be Islamist, but in the past. Baathist and pan Arab and pan Arabism and Nasserism, so he's always seen that as the main conflict. But he he's also kind of said there'll come a time when the Arabs will be, will begrudgingly accept our our presence. Well, they'll understand that it makes more sense for them to work together with us rather than to to, to fight us. And that's why he never never closed the door to that kind of secret diplomacy with the Saudis and with the Egyptians. He never wanted to, like Shimon Peres, to start opening up embassies and having these big, fancy international conferences in Sharm el-Sheikh with, with 20 leaders holding hands, the, the, the way Shimon Peres was always loved to do. And, and that didn't work very well for Peres because in the end, Israeli voters preferred a tough guy. But the idea of having this 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 kind of alliance with the Saudis is not necessarily a new idea. You can see Netanyahu hinting many years ago already that this kind of thing would be possible, and certainly it would be possible if the West, as he, as as he saw it, would be in Israel's side. That the Arabs would have no choice but to draw clear to Israel, unless unless the West will make it clear that they were not going to ditch Israel and, and, you know, basically, as, as, as he accused, not he personally, but some of his supporters accused Obama of throwing Israel under the bus. So, the, so certainly the fact that the Americans did continue supporting Israel at the same time, Iran became, became this joint thing. And I think the third thing is that the, is that the leaders of countries like Saudi Arabia, and I know this because they've said so in private in meetings that they had recently in Washington, have themselves felt that the Palestinian issue is no longer the kind of issue which makes the Arab world or the Arab street. And, and, you, and you, you've traveled the Arab world, you know it better than I do. That word the Arab street is not a, is not a, is, is, is not a real concept. No, there. not anymore. It's not anymore. <laughs> maybe never maybe really. Maybe never was. But, but it certainly isn't anymore. And I think that, and I know that, that the Saudi leadership has certainly done surveys to see whether uh, perceived closeness towards Israel and the more of a distance away and less, less playing lip service to the Palestinian issue would go over. And they're beginning to see it. They're, 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 they've seen in recent years a change in trend. So all these things are coming together in, in a, where a situation where people like Mohammed bin Salman, the, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, who's planning, he's 35, he's planning 50 years of rule over Saudi Arabia. He looks around and says, where, where are the, centers of power in the region. Who do I link up with? And he sees Israel. And he thinks, well, maybe I don't want to be seen too openly embracing Israel, but at least on a pragmatic level, this is the, this is the kind, of, kind of country I can work with. And Netanyahu is the, is the right kind of person for him because Netanyahu is not, is not asking him 
to open up a, an embassy in Tel Aviv or in Riyadh. He's not asking. He didn't even ask for the for the for the air route. That was something that the Indians asked asked for, and it was okay with the Saudis. So it was okay. It worked well for Israel. But all these things, all these little signs which are accumulating, are signs of more of a change on the Arab side than they are on the Israeli side. Mm. The thing is, just, just the beneficiary of them. He's positioned himself to be the the right man at the right time for this. It seems that, in a sense, the the world is catching up to the Netanyahu strongman concept. You've got Erdogan, you've got Sisi, you've you've got um, Mohammed bin Salman, MBS. Um, and for, and further afield, you can, you can see that the leaders of China, you can see Putin. Abe in Japan, Putin, mm. Modi in uh, in India, and Donald Trump, who wants to be a strongman. He's he's the wannabe in the group, but. He's the president of the United States, so he's strong just by the fact that he sits on top of the biggest military in the world. So all these men, you, you mentioned it, the one strong uh, leader, world leader who doesn't get along well with Bibi is Angela Merkel. No, no coincidence there. And also Erdogan, but Erdogan's not getting, getting along well with anyone right now. So Bibi is kind of at the center of this group, and he's been there long, you know, before any of them. He, he was a prime minister in 1996. He's been there even longer than Putin has been there. So for them, for many of them, he's a sort of a mentor. He's the man who stood up to Barack Obama. Barack Obama is now playing golf and he, and Bibi's still in charge of his country. So they all see him as this kind of leader who can claim to be democratic at the same time, but at the same time not be very democratic because he's, because he's ruling over five million Palestinians without, without, without any, uh, civil or human rights. Well, some human rights, but not any civil rights. So this, this kind of, idea of a leader who can pretend to be democratic at the same time, at the same time have these various features of autocracy, is seen as very strong. It's seen as someone who, who gets his way over a liberal human rights uh, agenda of the Obama administration and other administrations which were perhaps before in the West. And there's a sort of outlier or harbinger of this period of the strong man. Bibi is the is this almost a spiritual godfather of the of this age, and because this phenomenon has spread now so far afield, um, could this save him from having to do anything about the Palestinian issue? I mean, Trump came in to office saying he would do the ultimate deal. He handed it to his neophyte diplomatic um, son-in-law. Son-in-law, which is an extraordinary act. Um, do we see? We are supposedly going to see the outlines of some sort of plan. The ultimate, the ultimate deal. Yes. Um, I, I, it has been suggested to me more than once. This may be less of a plan and more of a roadmap. Uh, but uh, as you said, he doesn't like uh, making having permanent. Solutions, permanent decisions in the context of uh, context of the Palestinian issue, he sees merit in the status quo and not actually having to do anything. And uh, I suppose the question is, uh, can he, in this changed global climate, get away with that stance? And does he want to? So, well, from for for nearly thirty one years, from the outbreak of the first Intifada in late nineteen eighty seven, there's been this idea that something is going to happen or an accumulation of things are going to happen which are going to make the situation between Israel and Palestinians unsustainable. The demographic balance is going to change. There'll be a massive uh, of hundreds of thousands of Palestinians marching on the on Israel's borders. Uh, there'll be some... They did just try that. Well, <laughs> but it wasn't hundreds of thousands. Of them. That's I mean, true. There'll be Tens. so much uh, there'll be so much diplomatic pressure you know, uh, El Barak said uh, there'll be a diplomatic tsunami which will 
break on Israel if Israel, Israel doesn't do something. Ariel Sharon called it Israel will be will, will be led into the Corrales, you know, the, where, where, where the bull in Spain is, is is slaughtered. There was this fear amongst Israeli leaders and perhaps hope amongst others that Israel would be pressured. An intolerable pressure would, would be applied in Israel. Israel would have to would have to give way. Netanyahu has always said the opposite. No, it's not going to happen. You, you, you're 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 so uh, wound up by this by this fear that, that that you're making concessions that we don't need to make. We don't need to make any confession. Concessions is not going to happen. Now these things could happen. The Palestinians could finally embrace real non-violent uh, uh, protests and march. A million Palestinians could march on, on, on the roadblocks from Ramallah and from Gaza. We could see new governments in, in the West suddenly. We could have uh, Bernie Sanders in, 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 in Washington and Jeremy Corbyn in London and who knows who else were in other countries. And we could see these changes met, become and, and apply that pressure on Israel. I, you know, you can't say you can't make a clear prediction. It's not going to happen. But fifty-one years since the, the occupation began, Israel is still there. Netanyahu seems to be winning the argument. He won it for the eight, entire eight years of Barack Obama. You could, arguably the most liberal, left-leaning, pro-Palestinian president in the White House, and it didn't happen. And my argument, and I've been writing this both in this book and in, and in countless pieces I've written for Haaretz over the years, is that it's, Israel has to, it's Israel's choice. Israel will have to choose whether it wants to be the kind of society which will forever continue to subjugate another nation, or it will change for its own benefit. I don't think that we see today and we, any sign of an international of international or external pressure forcing Israel to, to to make the decision it could only come from Israelis and i think it, and i think it did come in the past from Israelis the Oslo process wasn't a, a result of pressure from the outside it was an idea that was was that was helped by some norwegian diplomats but it was something that came about by Israelis working together with palestinians without major pressure. Ariel Sharon wasn't pressured from the outside to to leave Gaza. So these and and even the the, the Camp David accords which which the US obviously helped very much and Camp David was the place in the US where where the accords were signed. It was it was a result of Anwar Sadat of Egypt coming to Israel and Israel saying, "Okay, we will give back the entire Sinai Peninsula because we want to have peace with Egypt." So I think that that the idea of of Something happening, forcing Israel to make peace, is obsolete. I think that it'll, it, it, it'll have to probably be with a leader after Netanyahu, because Netanyahu does not believe in making peace with the Palestinians. He's not the kind of peace which is possible. But I think there'll be another leader, and probably another leader, leader on the Palestinian side. Abbas at 82 doesn't seem to be the kind of person to deliver the kind of leadership which is necessary for, for the Palestinians. But I think on both sides, it'll be happening from within. It won't be happening because an American president or a Russian president or a Saudi crown prince will come along and say, I am going to make you guys make peace. Well, let's talk about Israel and Israel's internal politics and turmoil. I mean, you get towards the end of the book talking about the divided Israel that um, Bibi has brought about or has happened whilst he's been in power. Um, how serious is that? as a threat to Israel's resolve and future, that people are so divided about him and about what they should do next. I think in the long term, it could be a very serious problem for Israel. Now, Israeli politics, the Israeli electoral system is a parliamentary system and proportional representation, which 
basically gives very small groups representation in the parliament. So any Israeli prime minister has to be by necessity, by necessity a coalition builder. Netanyahu is a coalition builder. Now, when we say someone is a coalition builder, we usually mean he brings people together. He's a unifier. He's this kind of person who smooths over the, uh, over the divides and so on. Netanyahu is a coalition builder of a, day, of a very different kind. He manages to bring the groups together who feel angry at the perceived old elites at the, at the, at the, at the establishment. Now, maybe he's been the establishment most of his life, certainly most of his public career. But he still managed to, to, to make all these disparate groups feel that they're all together fighting. They're all sticking it to the establishment. And Bibi is their champion of sticking it to the establishment. That's how he built his career. And if you look at all the parties which are in the Likud coalition. Likud coalition is a very strong coalition because all these parties have it. We've talked before about Israel and the Saudis against Iran. So it's Bibi and all his coalition allies against the so-called elite, the so-called establishment of Israel. And that's a very powerful, unifying, yet divisive. <laughs> so, but, 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 but by thriving on having enemies within Israel, it's, it could be the Israeli Arab, and it's the left, and it's the media, and it's the, now it's become the legal establishment, even become the police, because the police are investigating Netanyahu, how dare the police endanger Israel's uh, su- very survival by, by trying to bring down the, the leader who is ensuring its survival, by, by, by broadcasting all these messages to the Israeli public, Netanyahu has probably the most div- has become the most divisive prime minister in Israel's history, and not just on the right, left, or secular religious divide, because there's so many different divides. And Tanyan himself is no religious person, but he's, he knows how to stoke up the, the angers of the religious community. He's not that much of a right winger in the sense that he doesn't believe in, in, in extending sovereignty to every centimeter of, of the land of Israel, but he uses the, the, the resentment and the, and the aspiration of the settlers' movement and their fear of one day being evicted like they were evicted from Sinai and from the Gaza Strip, he uses those fears very, very effectively. And he uses the anger of, of Mizra, and he himself is an Ashkenazi elitist, but he uses the anger and the, the, the justified bitterness and resentment of the Mizrahi Jews who were brought in the 50s by, the, by those first governments of Israelis to parts of Israel which were less less hospitable, less had less services and still today are less less well-developed than other parts of the country. He uses all these things very well. And even though he, he, he personally has no experience of being poor or disadvantaged in any way, he has this... It's, it's very similar to the way Donald Trump, who was born the son of a millionaire, managed to, re, managed to somehow to resonate with blue-collar voters in the US. This feeling that, I, I, I get your resentment, I understand your anger, and this, this almost metaphysical, uncanny way of stoking those fears and angers. That's what Netanyahu does so well. That's how he built his coalition, and that's what's not good for Israel in the long term. Uh, well, for the last few years, the major source of stoking up fears has been, or rather the major target for those fears has been Iran. There has been talk of a possible conflict with Iran. We've seen um, the first open clashes between Israel and Iran in Syria. Uh, there is also the possibility that Israel could choose to bomb uh, Iran's nuclear facilities. How do you see the chances of uh, a larger conflict with Iran and Israel unfolding, or do you see them? Well, in the last few months, Netanyahu was actually speaking on two, in, on two levels. He was talking about the nixit or fixit of the Iran deal. And I remember last time I had a conversation with him, and it was a few other people in the room, but I managed to... Uh, get a few questions and talk to him about this issue. 
uh, was about six months ago. And I said, seriously, do you, are you on the fix it or the nix it now? And he said, no, actually, I'm, I'm on fix it now. And he gave a f- number of ways that he believed that the Iran deal could be obviously enhanced, made much tougher against Iran. And I think that, I mean, you could, you could say that, 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 that wasn't realistic and there was no way that the Germans or the French or certainly the Iranians were ever going to go along with that. But I think that he wanted to have some kind of framework and he, and when he realized that Trump was going to obviously blow away the Iran deal eventually, he, he got on board with Trump. But he doesn't want to break down every single way of dealing with Iran. If he'd wanted a, a war with Iran, he could have launched a war in 2011. Yes, they, it would have mean, meant going against the Americans. Yes, it would have meant uh, taking considerable military risk. But his number two at the time, his right-hand man, was Ehud Barak, a defense minister, who want, Barak really wanted to go to war with Iran. He wanted to lead Israel as a defense minister. He wanted to lead Israel's military machine on a war against Iran, and the military machine was prepared. The fact that a lot of the generals were against it and they thought it was a bad idea doesn't mean that they weren't doing what was expected of them as men in uniform to prepare that machine, that, that, that very well-oiled and powerful machine, which is Israeli military, for, to, to, to attack Iran. And I don't think Bibi really wanted to go all the way. I think that he wanted everyone to believe that he wanted to do it, and he certainly wanted the Americans to... to, to you know, to, to impose much much tougher sanctions uh, on Iran and not to sign the Iran deal in the in the way that Obama did, out of fear that Israel may attack. But he didn't he didn't give the order to he could have given the order to if he'd wanted to. So I don't think he wants war with Iran. He doesn't want to see regime change. He does believe he he does think that Iran today is in the same situation as the Soviet Union was in the, in the late 1980s, and we can see and, and and some of the the economic data may may support that the real is is plummeting, the Iranian market is is in trouble. I think that it's an exaggeration to think that more sanctions sanctions will actually t- uh, push Iran into meltdown or bring about regime change. And even if there is regime change, there's no Gorbachev or Yeltsin waiting there in the wings. Whoever's waiting there in the wings is Qasem Soleimani, mm-hmm. someone that probably Bibi wants to deal with even less than he wants mm-hmm. to deal with, uh, with Hassan Rouhani. So I don't think, I, I, I think he's on the wrong, on the wrong track there. But what he, what he's trying to achieve with the new sanctions that the Americans are leaving and maybe perhaps other countries will also be forced by the Americans to, to impose more sanctions is regime change. And, I think it's a very dangerous game to play. It worked with the Soviet Union, but it could have gone terribly wrong as well. But he sees himself as as, a, as the Ronald Reagan of our era, trying to push, trying to bankrupt Iran into into regime change in the same way that some people read that part of history as Reagan having done so to the Soviets. Uh, well, we've just had uh, the State of Israel's seventieth birthday. Next year will be BB's. Um, he may not be about to stop, but he won't go on forever. Um, predictions are a dangerous game, but um, and certainly he could have uh, more than 20 more years ahead of him in public life if Shimon Peres has anything to go by. But I wonder if you could hazard a guess at what his legacy will be. Well, I think his legacy will very much depend on whoever comes after him because we'll, we'll say... So you know, I'm, I'm looking at this from, from, from my perspective as someone who thinks Israel has to end the occupation, not because of its economic reasons or, or, or because of uh, its diplomatic pressure. I think Israel has to do that for its own good as a society and to be able to, to focus on, 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 on really realizing its potential because Israel today 
has achieved things that very few people would have believed it would achieve in 70 years, if we're talking about economic and technological uh, development and also military prowess and, and its situation in the region, I think is very few people would have, would have imagined Israel would have reached this point in 70 years. And I think it shows that Israel has an incredible potential, which is not realizing today because its society is being held back by all these divides that Netanyahu is exploiting and by the issue with the Palestinians, which forces Israel to devote so much of its time to this kind of fear-mongering and we have to keep the Palestinians in check. We can't let go, we can't allow ourselves to actually think what kind of a country we want to be. So I think Netanyahu will be seen as a prime minister who held on, who survived, who helped Israel survive, but also held Israel back. Because Israel has, not just because of Donald Trump, because so many things happening now in the region, Israel has an incredible opportunity now to really decide how it wants to be for the next 70 years. Not just the question of what the borders, what the relationship with the Palestinians would be, but also what kind of relationship it would have within itself, with its minorities, between religious and secular. How, Where would it position itself between the Western world and the Middle East, where it's geographically situated? All these things are right now in Israel's grasp. And Israel never had as much power as it has now to decide how these things will look for the next 70 years. But Netanyahu doesn't want to do that. He wants to, say this quote, hold the line, don't ever concede. Better to bully people slowly into submission rather than to try and rebuild a real re- relationship with them. So I think Netanyahu's legacy to a large degree will be of someone who squandered what was perhaps Israel's best opportunity to achieve the most it could in the next 70 years of its existence. But I hope I'm wrong. Anshul, thank you very much. Thank you, Catherine.